Hello, you're listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Trout. How many times have you had questions after the homily? How many times have you wished that Father had spoken on this topic or maybe that topic? And have you thought, wouldn't it be great to just sit down with the priest and talk about those things of the day that just didn't quite make it in the homily? Well, if that's the case, then this is the podcast for you. We'll talk about topics ranging from literature to politics, from church teaching to church architecture. If it's relevant to Catholics, to their daily lives, and their journey to heaven, it's on our agenda. Whether you're an every Sunday or a Christmas and Easter or a I can't remember the last time I went to Mass Catholic, we're here and we're here for you. Father Daniel Shai is the pastor of St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. Father Dan, welcome back to, you know, your podcast, After the Homily. It's great to be here, Chris. You know, today, as we as we sit, it's a beautiful, sunny day in Fort Wayne, Indiana, as most days are in February. And, you know, listeners have recently read, I'm certain, of the tragedy in Turkey and Syria. Yes. As I read yesterday, I think we've surpassed 21,000 dead, a horrific event. And, of course, as I think about it, of some of those dead were were children. Some were probably even infants that may not have been counted among the dead yet. And I just know that listeners, Catholic and otherwise, have probably found themselves wrestling with that age-old question, what kind of a God would allow this to happen? And I know that as a priest, you're you're confronted with that question by parishioners uh, on a regular basis. But, you know, whether it's the earthquake or whether it's childhood leukemia or in, in my realm, whether it's maybe the, the loss of a child, it's impossible, I think, not to have those questions. So I, I thought maybe we could, you know, start with a discussion. About what are the principles there and how do we, as faithful Christians, even begin to answer that ourselves and to ask that ourselves? Yes. So I have a preliminary response to my preliminary response to your question. As you were asking it, I was thinking of the journalist who came up to Pope Benedict before he became Pope and asked the the future Holy Father, does the Pope ever doubt? And then Cardinal Ratzinger said, if by doubt you mean deliberate, willful disbelief, no. But does the Pope suffer under the questions that make faith difficult? Yes. And so When you pose these questions, you're doing so, Chris, uh, not to some outside observer, but to somebody living the full drama of, of what it is to be human in this very mysterious world. So that's the preliminary response. Now to my preliminary response. So before we can ask the question, what kind of a God would allow fill in the blank, whatever bad thing, we should first ask the question, why is it that we as human beings have such a profound interest in what is good, what is just, and what is loving? Where did that come from, in other words? So why would we even ask that question, right? Yeah. Um, Did we invent that? Did that 
just kind of bubble up from the uh, primordial ooze that that we even entertain the thought that, well, if we were running the universe, we would find a better way or a more loving way or a more just way. So the first thing that needs to be really thought through in a deep, sustained way is what is the origin of my love of what is good, my love of what is just, what is fair, and, and really my, my love of love. And the, the humble response is, this is a gift that we've inherited because our life fundamentally is a gift. And seen from that standpoint, we're in a much better position now to get to some steps toward entering the question that you initially posed. But that's a big step, isn't it? Because if you're not, if you're not in that position, if you don't see gift, if you don't see the next breath as a gift, then you're going to have a hard time understanding any of this, aren't you? You know, and what happens is we wind up abstracting ourselves from the actual real world and we start kind of floating above it in an abstract way, judging it and judging the creator of it from our standpoint, which quickly becomes untenable. <laughs> we, we can't simply remain in that that position of abstraction because what it leads to is is despair and it it winds up filling us with you know the anger curdles into hatred the the sorrow curdles into despair and that actually becomes inhuman so the very fact that when something bad happens, the fact that we observe this outpouring of so much goodness, this, this outpouring of so much sacrificial love to go right there to the, the tragedy, it, it's almost like observing the body's immune system when there's a wound. You know, all the body's resources go to where things are needed. So at the heart of a tragic earthquake, for example, at the heart of it is this mysterious outpouring of self-sacrificing love. People who allow their lives, their preoccupations to be not just interrupted, but, but permanently changed and, and who start dedicating themselves to the most essentially human activities of, of care for one another. Now, it, it's not to say that tragedy automatically and one-sidedly evokes goodness and self-sacrificing love. That was suggested had a reason. The reason for the tragedy was to show uh, the Oh, goodness. exactly, exactly. And, and I, I don't want to imply that at all. Uh, these are just preliminary steps, but, but it is it is important to note 
that in every tragedy that would, would seemingly come just from the world, the universe, and also human-generated tragedies, one can almost always find this, this impulse of, of self-giving, self-sacrificing love as the response to it. And I, I would propose that's a clue for understanding who God is and where God chooses to be, not beyond the tragedy, but at its very heart as, as the, the redemptive healing center. So if, if you need a visual from the gospel, for example, and this will both sharpen the question and, and help provide a way toward a response, you know, the, the, the apostles are in the boat and the storm comes up and it's threatening to drown them. And there Jesus is. In one event, Jesus is on the, the mountain praying. So he's not with them in the boat. In another event, he's in the boat, but he's asleep. So how could it be that, that God and Jesus is God in our flesh? How can it be that God is both beyond, uh, transcendent of whatever life-threatening tragedy is at hand, and also the stable still point at the heart of it. And I'm, I'm aware that even just drawing attention to this miracle raises the question, well, what about the people who, who drown, who are shipwrecked and uh, all those things? But again, before we allow ourselves to be crushed by the pileup of all of these tragedies, the decision of the creator of the universe to reveal that he enters the worst of the worst to be with us, to reveal that he is with us. His, his title, uh, Emmanuel, from the prophet Isaiah, God with us, is, is the promise that Jesus makes after his resurrection from the dead. I am with you always until the end of the age. So at this point, we need to take another step. And that step is we live in a cosmos that is relation within relation within relation within relation within relation, all the way down. So the very fact that we can even attempt to make sense of what happens shows that we've been given minds that are, are, are exquisitely attuned to seeking meaning, to discerning cause and effect when it comes to the interrelatedness of all things. And when it comes to, let's just take the initial question you asked, when it comes to the question of earthquakes, well, the human race has studied the movement of the tectonic plates of the earth for some time. And this isn't simply some arbitrary act of 
some angry God. It just so happens that the very planet that produces our life has deep interrelationships that are earlier than we are, that are materially more powerful than we are. And oh, by the way, our life hinges on all of the, for example, the mineral richness of of what's deeper in the earth being brought to the surface. So the, the very movements of the world of planet earth testify to just realm within realm within realm of interrelated things. And it's as if the whole earth testifies that we are not gods. We, we are not the masters of what we think we're the masters of. Again, not like the Lord is some arbitrary being devising cruel tricks to humble us through torment, but the fact that we are creatures who are here for a time, we are on pilgrimage, our lives are interconnected, and mysteriously, some of our lives are a matter of days, a matter of months, for some of us, many of us, a matter of years, decades. We all live in a world of limits within limits within limits. And if you're going to have a world of order within order within order within order, that is going to apply, imply limits within limits within limits within limits. And for us to be taught by the Lord to come to him, to call out to him, to receive him as Mary received from the angel, Jesus himself conceived in her womb. For us to allow the Lord to dwell in us, to allow the Lord to dwell among us, to allow the Lord to be the transcendent horizon, the goal, the transformative end of our lives, that's, that's the deeply mysterious, deeply good drama of, of being a human being. I mean, it's interesting. If we, if we played a little intellectual game almost and said, you know, we were on this an advisory committee for God, and he says, thinking about an earthquake in Turkey— you know, you could imagine the advisory committee would say, bad idea. Right. Let's not do that. But listening to you, I could almost imagine God's response would be, but it has to be. There are these interconnected rules of, of physics and, and play tectonics, uh, to your point, that it has to be. So the very fact that the universe operates with order within order within order within order so that it can be investigated by physicists, by chemists, by biologists, by, by geophysicists. It shows that God's plans are larger than any single event that we would like to control on our own terms. And the fact that in those parts of the world, 
there's also great conflict going on. I mean, there's been a war going on in Syria for years and years and years. And for that, in a certain way, to be interrupted by something greater, not that it solves the problem, and please don't misunderstand, it's not the Lord's way of just putting an end to human selfishness, but it is to say that the limitations of our lives constantly beckon to us on a daily, even moment-to-moment basis to give ourselves over to love, to realize that we're in this together. We are, we are dependent on each other for our lives. And sometimes underneath what we present, to God as our vision of what's good and just and loving is, is a type of idol of isolated suburban living of our life as God's on our own terms. In other words, I want to control how long I live or don't live. I want to control who I relate to because I like them or who I want turned into a charcoal briquette or have a building fall in them. I want to be the one to determine what my day looks like. And within each one of those first person singular pronouns, (laughs) mine, 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 we can live for vast stretches of our life on autopilot thinking that my life is owed me. My, my next moment is, is, is mine to have. And that's, that's where we step away from, from the gift. Now, if the end result of the building in Syria falling on those people, if the end result is nothing more than crushed annihilation, we are actually living an irredeemable tragedy. So we are, we are living, as the, the poet famously said, a, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, but ultimately empty. If, on the other hand, this life of ours is a preparation for, uh, an initiation into, and in a mysterious way, a participation in a life to come, uh, then the, the final word and the, the, the final yes of God is yet to be revealed. And here's where what St. Paul preaches about the resurrection is essential. If, if we don't believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, if we don't believe that the Lord risen in our flesh has opened a dimension of reality in which everything that we've lived can be brought to perfection, healed, ennobled, redeemed by love. We are, as St. Paul says, of, of all men, uh, the, the ones most to be pitied. So the pre-Christian philosopher Aristotle said, the difference between a tragedy and a comedy is the happy ending. And the happy ending remains in the hands of God, 
And it's been shown to us in the person of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. He says in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, behold, I make all things new. And every single one of those words is important. I, God, not me, make. In other words, the creative act is ongoing. All things, which implies in all of their interrelatedness, new. We're not simply living on pile of rubble on top of pile of rubble on top of pile of rubble. It is true that that is part of our existence, but, but the Lord is continually making all things new. So all the generations who've lived before us, every single human being who's experienced that deeply tragic sense of limitation that is death, it's our belief that those people are brought before the Lord of all life and and for those who have embraced the, the goodness of the Lord, that, that goodness uh, can and will be brought to perfection in Christ. You know, some would say um, a great way to study life is to study death. And I know in your priestly role, you've had what I would say the privilege of, of walking through death with people, their loved ones or even, or even the individuals themselves. It would seem that someone that has an understanding of their role in the universe as they approach death might look different than someone who doesn't have that understanding. Have you seen that in your time? Yes, yes. The first thing I thought of was Pope Benedict's encyclical letter, Spe Salvi, on the virtue of hope. And in that letter, Benedict quotes the epitaph of, of a pre-Christian grave marker, a pagan grave marker, that just said, from nothing to nothing. And that sense of emptiness as it's lived reveals that a life without faith is dark, and I would go so far as to say inhuman. We, we simply can't do that. And so now to your question, I have seen in my priesthood the spectrum of grieving. And in those who do not have faith, I have experienced on more occasions than I can count a type of inconsolable keening, uh, just kind of a, the guttural response of the creature bereft of hope. And it's just agonizing and horrible. I've experienced in people of faith a grieving which is profoundly sorrowful. I'm thinking of one person in particular who, who literally cried all the tears out of his eyes and he just started crying blood. Like the tear ducts had no tears left and was crying blood. And yet that sorrow was transfigured by hope. Hope is the power of trusting the power of God's goodness and the goodness of God's power. So God is not good, but impotent, nor is God 
powerful but arbitrary. God's goodness is powerful and God's power is good. And to go deeper and higher and beyond any given sorrows of the moment, any, any incoherences of the moment, that's the act of, of faith, hope, and love that come from Christ. So like at the moment of the crucifixion, there are any number of absurdities and just on their own terms, uh, irresolvable conflicts. It's only over time and coming into contact with the Lord of time that a certain sense can be made, not to justify what happened, but to show that its place in the overall whole served uh, a purpose that God could take to a, a higher, deeper level of goodness. So I think of the, the people who have known the loss of family members through murder or just horrible circumstances. And, and just years later, discovering that there's a power of forgiveness in their life that they didn't invent. I remember there was a, my first parish, Dick and Ann McCloskey lost their daughter on the 9-11 attacks in the World Trade Center when the plane crashed into it. And I remember the moment years afterward when Dick McCloskey told me with tears in his eyes that, that finally the Lord had allowed him to forgive the, the people who took his daughter's life. And the, the power of that, the power not to be determined by the world's evil, the power not to be enslaved by circumstance or, or another person's malice, that, that is a power beyond that of earth. It, 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 is, it is the beginning of heaven itself. And to the point of your story, he didn't have that revelation in the moment. No, he didn't. Uh, it took time, years. Exactly. Suspect, you know, for that and time. so a prayer that is so basic and it's so simple, but utterly profound is, Lord, bring good out of whatever I'm suffering right now. Lord, show me the good that I need to pursue in this moment right now. Show me how your love can be present and at work in me right now. I mean, Chris, you're, you're a physician and you see on a daily basis the limitations of, of human life, how frail our humanity is. I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's just unfathomably complex. I mean, relation within relation within relation. And, and precisely because of that, it's vulnerable to any number, like the smallest defect can, can throw things off and can limit a life. And the fact that our lives are interconnected and that, for example, you put yourself at the intersection of where the wonder of human life meets its limitation. Mm. In a sense, you do in a, in a very dramatic way what each of us as human beings have to do 
in whatever task we have. I mean, you can go one moment relating to, I don't know, mom, dad, a sibling in one way, and in a heartbeat, it's totally changed. As I listen to you say that, I'm reminded, though, that um, the great moments, you know, the amazing moments happen sort of on the margins, if you will, in the earthquakes, so to speak, at, at the unexpected tragedy. It, it, it never ceases to amaze me, it, like your friend, to suddenly see greatness just climb out of the ashes of despair. And you, and you see people come to greatness and, and their ability to forgive, their ability to, to comfort, their you know, ability to cope. And that, that doesn't happen when life is rosy. Yes. Not usually. Yes. And, and again, it's not to explain away every bad thing. And I, I should just say it point blank right now. There are certain questions at certain levels of the interrelatedness of all things that are unanswerable by us, this side of paradise. And so it is not only possible, it is not only likely, it is inevitable that we will carry some questions of the meaning of certain events at certain levels with us for the rest of our lives. Now, having said that, I will also say that just as certain seeds actually can only germinate after a forest fire has burned everything down, so that is true for some trees. They can only reproduce themselves after the the whole thing is burned down. In the human spirit, there are certain seeds of goodness that can only be liberated from the heart of, of these seeming tragedies. Whether it's Maximilian Kolbe at the concentration camp substituting his life for, for the person who was going to be executed, whether it's Mother Teresa picking up the abandoned, maggot-infested human being left to die as trash on the street, whether it's any one of us choosing to seek what is good for somebody who is crushed by sorrow or just, I don't know, infected with, with hatred, this, this power of divine love that we've been given, it's ever-present. And it has potential to give itself to us in ways that, that we can't even imagine in, in the moment. Yeah, you know, I'm hearing you say in some ways the victims of uh, the, the family members of those killed in the earthquake or, or any other tragedy, of course they're going to be devastated. They're, they're going to cry until their tears are no more. But somehow the follower of Christ in that tragedy finds a way to see that there's something bigger at play and that one day it will make sense. But as you say, not this side of paradise. And, and for the ones who have died they are going to meet the Lord and to meet the author of life is, um, is an awesome thing. They're coming into the presence of, of goodness itself. For those who are suffering, their lives are mysteriously connected with the life and death of Christ crucified. They are brought to Calvary, even those who don't even know that Calvary exists. They are suffering with Christ. Christ is suffering in them. And 
they will know sooner or later that nothing of what they have experienced is foreign to the wise and loving providence of God, that God is with them exactly there. And then for those in a position to allow their lives to be changed freely and to rise to the occasion and to give themselves in self-sacrificing love, I can guarantee you that there are people in these days whose entire future will be determined by what they're living as human beings now. In other words, the future generation of doctors and nurses and EMTs, the seeds of those vocations are germinating in these days because the human race is not an arbitrary collection of isolated individuals. Like we're a single organism and it, it sounds strange to say it that way, but, but it's true. I, all of the human inventions, all of the, the, the human ties of affection, just the very genetics that we have points to the fact that we belong to each other. And that gift comes from God and that gift belongs to God and is sustained by God and will be transformed by God. And yeah, this is our life. So I know this weekend and every weekend, parishes all across the world will, will be offering prayers for, for the victims and the survivors of this tragedy and other tragedies. And before we began today, we were talking about some of the tragedies in the Ukraine, but there's no shortage of tragedies, is there? That's true. <laughs> what are we praying for and what are our expectations of those prayers? So I have a strange response to that question because <laughs> actually we have been created in a, in a particular place to love our neighbor and to love our neighbor as ourself. We live in a strange situation in which all the problems of the world can come to us at any given time and, and simply overwhelm us. And we can either get desensitized or we can despair, become cynical. But actually, I, I, I think the best thing that we can do for anyone in any other part of the world who is suffering tragedy is to live a life of self-sacrificing love where we are in our particular network of friendships so for example, in the Ukraine, I'm friends with, with a family of Ukrainian background and the war there has really prompted them to devote resources from their own family and their own network to aid those in need in that part of the world. And the fact that the one holy Catholic and apostolic church brings the gospel around the world. So there's a circulation of, of prayers and resources that, that spans the globe, but I'm fearful that the 24-hour news cycle is actually impeding our understanding of, of our human life. It's, it's not that we're to ignore suffering that's, that's far away, but 
it can lead to a kind of abstracted universality where we're just kind of on a daily basis surveying the trouble. And normally what the cameras focus on is the trouble. And it creates a, a spiritual disequilibrium in us where we wind up going in the direction of, you know, questioning the goodness of God, questioning the goodness of our life. And, and then before we know it, despair. <laughs> yeah. And we're in the realm of, of the devil and, and our heart is filled with all these accusations. And oh, meanwhile, the, the people who are actually near us, who actually need comparatively simple acts of goodness on our part, wind up getting forgotten. And I, I actually think the goodness that, that we give rooted where we are is its own great blessing to, to those who are in need far away. Well, that's beautiful. I mean, you've certainly uh, expanded my understanding of this and every other tragedy, as I know you have our listeners. So thank you. Thank you for those insights. Thank you, Christopher. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of After the Homily as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. And I hope you'll plan to join us regularly for future episodes. Are there topics you'd like to hear about from Father Dan? Do you have questions that you'd like answered? If so, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at church at saintv.org and type after the homily in the subject line. Or you can message me directly, 260-450-8878 and start the message with after the homily. And a special thanks to our friends at Redeemer Radio and Spoke Street Media for producing this podcast. You can enjoy an endless variety of amazing Catholic content by visiting SpokeStreet.com. I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and thanks again for listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.